Good evening. If you would, open with me to the book of Romans, and I want you to open to chapter 11. We're, we're not in chapter 11 yet, but we're going to start this lesson off there. We're, we have, uh, we're going to be laying the groundwork to some of Paul's major points that happen later in the text. So like some of the lessons like this morning and some of the lessons that I'll be preaching, I almost feel like they're incomplete <laughs> because they are. Uh, the book of Romans is, is read as a whole, uh, I think is much, much healthier than just part by part. But sometimes you got to get there. And so uh, I'm trying to, trying to make points of what Paul is saying that are helpful, but recognizing that he's building up to an argument. And so some of the things I said this morning, like uh, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's, it's literally it's talking about the question as to whether or not God is righteous. Is God just? There are some questions in people's minds about whether God is acting justly in the way that Jews and Gentiles are coming together. Because the Jews were supposed to be his special covenant and unique people in the world, separate and set apart from everyone else. And that was part of his covenant blessing. That was part of Torah, and that was part of, of their expectations with God. And yet now, when you read Paul, it's almost like he's saying, ah, circumcision doesn't matter, and Torah doesn't make you special, and all of that. And you're like, so wait a minute, so is God just wrong? Is God God, has God forgotten his promises? Is he now rejecting his people for the Gentiles? And if he's doing that, is that unjust? See, God made promises to Israel, and now the reality is Jesus came, and most Israel didn't accept him. Some did, but many Gentiles did. So what's the deal? Has God forgotten about Israel? Has God become unjust? And so the expression, the righteousness of God, the word righteousness and the word justice in Greek, they're the same word. So, so just context determines which word you're going to use. And, and righteousness of God is this huge phrase in Romans. It pops up over and over again. Like almost the whole book is discussing God's righteousness. And we often interpret that, or some often interpret that, to mean basically the righteousness of God means doing, me doing the things that God wants me to do. That's the righteousness, like, that's the righteousness God wants me to have. Or it's the righteousness that God gives to me as a gift, which is part of the story of Romans. That's God imputing righteousness or, or declaring us righteous. But a major question is whether or not, is God actually righteous? And so Romans 11.1, 1, this is the question that Paul will be building to for the first 10 chapters. So we saw glimpses of it this morning when he says in chapter 11 and verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. That's the question that's ultimately surrounding the righteousness of God. Has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer is actually an emphatic no, he has not. God has not rejected Israel. God has not rejected the Jews. Uh, he spends uh, a couple of chapters explaining the ways that God has not done that. For example, um, he, he'll say that not all who descend from Abraham, even from the beginning, are Jews. I mean, you did have Isaac and you did have Ishmael. Uh, and, uh, and God may have chosen uh, Isaac and his descendants, uh, and God was right and free to do that. Just like now, through the descendants of Isaac, the Messiah has come, and he can choose all of those who give it allegiance to the Messiah. And so in the same way that God could freely choose between Isaac and Ishmael, he can choose those who give their allegiance to the Messiah. He also says that it's, it's the true, uh, you can read passages that talk about the heart being circumcised, uh, and you can say that not all Israelites are those who physically or literally genealogically descend from Abraham. And so God can have a wider definition of, of 
of Israel than, uh, than the, the Jews have wanted to limit it to. Also, and this is Paul's point by looking at himself, there are still Jews who are faithful to the Messiah. Paul's one of them. And so God has actually saved a remnant of faithful Israel, of true uh, genealogical Israel. So like no matter which way you slice it, God has not rejected Israel. He has saved a remnant, which is what he always promised to do. And that, that's whether you're talking about Babylonian captivity or, or the oppression under Assyria or different tumultuous times in Israel's history, God has always been there to save a remnant. And that same thing is happening. So God hasn't given up on them. Instead of what he's done is he's expanded them to include even more people to be welcomed into the family of Israel. And, and so that, that's largely what he's getting about. But so much of that deals with, is God unjust? Has he rejected his people? Has he forgotten the promises he made to Israel? Is he treating them common like everyone else? Are they not special to him anymore? Uh, look back with me at uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and uh, in verse 5, this is another way where you'll see Paul using righteousness of God in that, in that way. Um, when he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. Do you see how the question he's talking about is, is God when he punishes or when God, when he chooses, is he unrighteous in that? So, so the question of God's righteousness is that question. Has he rejected his people? Is he unrighteous? Is God uh, forgot about justice? That's why at the end of Romans uh, 3.26, after talking about the death of Jesus, he says that this is a demonstration of God's righteousness at the present time so that he would be just or righteous and the justifier, the one who makes righteous, those who give their allegiance or, or faithfulness to Jesus. So through Jesus, God has proven his righteousness. He has justified himself. He has vindicated his name uh, to those who might accuse him of injustice. And Jesus is, is the means by which he has vindicated his own name as the one who can judge. So as we start off this lesson, just keep that in the background of your mind a little bit. Uh, questions about God's justice or God's righteousness by uh, equating Jew and Gentile together into one family. God has not besmirched his good name. Uh, he is still a righteous and just and loving God. He has not rejected his people. He's expanded his people. He's not rejected the covenant. He's renewed the covenant in new ways, which he has every right to do. And so that's part of Paul's discussion. But that does leave the question, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Uh, I mean, if you read the Old Testament, it sure sounds like there is. Is there advantage? And Paul's answer to that is an emphatic yes, there is. Um, and so you can see that with like uh, in Romans 1.16 where he says that uh, the gospel is for the salvation of all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, that idea of to the Jew first is throughout Romans. If you look at Romans chapter 9, which again, we're not there yet, but we're going to be getting there. And so some of the groundwork of this discussion is being laid in these early chapters that will become a much meatier discussion when you get to chapters 9 through 11. But look at Romans chapter 9. Uh, Paul so badly longs for Israel to be saved even those who don't believe in Jesus, he wants them to put their faith in Jesus. He says something that, um, truth be told, I, I don't know if I've ever, 
I want to love people the way Paul does. Uh, I don't know if I could say this type of thing. But uh, in Romans chapter 1, in verse, the first three verses, he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Like when he looks at the Israelites who have not accepted Jesus, he has intense sorrow and unbearable grief that does not go away. He says in verse 3, and this is that really tough statement, for I wish, or for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. It's almost as if their salvation matters more to me than my own. Uh, he goes on to describe the people that he's talking about in verse 4. And notice what he says. These are all advantages that the Jew has. He says, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, like the great patriarchs, and from whom the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And so again, that, notice that. It's not as though the word of God has failed. He's answering and defending God's justice and God's word. But notice that list right there. Those are advantages that, that the Jews have. They are the ones that received the promises. They are the ones through whom the Messiah came. They're the ones that were given the law. Like They're the ones who have the temple services. Like All of those things are meaningful and special things that came from Israel. So Israel does have advantage. But go back to chapter 3. We're going to be flipping around just a little bit here. Uh, but back in chapter 3, I, I want you to see how he's planting the seeds of some of these things that later on he'll be developing. But in chapter 3, uh, notice, uh, so chapter 3 and verse 1 begins, surprisingly, after chapter 2 ends. Um, but, and in chapter 2, uh, Paul has been talking about how the Jews have sinned just like the Gentiles have. And so they can't claim superiority over them. In fact, he then says, but what about the fact that you have the law? Well, the people who do the law without having it are better than the people who have the law but don't do it. So it's not ownership of the law that makes you great. It's whether or not you actually do it. And the reality is neither Jews nor Gentiles have done it. So the law doesn't make you better. And then they say, well, what about circumcision? And he makes the same type of argument. Basically, what matters is whether or not your heart is actually circumcised in repentance to God. Being circumcised but then ignoring God's law, that doesn't put you in special status. In fact, if you weren't circumcised but you actually did God's law, that would matter more to him because that would mean that your heart is circumcised, which is the circumcision God really cares about. So in this line of reasoning, he's saying, in essence, having the law doesn't make you special and having circumcision doesn't make you better. And so chapter 3 and verse 1 begins, what then is the advantage or what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? So it's like, so are you really saying, Paul, that those things don't matter at all? And what's Paul's answer? What advantage is the Jew? And what is the benefit of circumcision? He says in verse 2, great in every respect. So again, his answer is, yeah, actually that is a benefit and that is an advantage. But then flip down, uh, we'll, we'll read the, verse of, the rest of verse 2. He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so one of the great benefits and advantage of the Jew is that they were actually given scripture. Like that's, that's huge. That's, that's, that's not a, a, a non-issue. Gentiles did not have scripture and the very oracles and word of God 
like the Jews did. And the Jews were entrusted with that, and they preserved that, and they kept that, and we benefit from that to this day. And so it, are, is there advantage to being a Jew in Paul's mind in the book of Romans? Yes. Uh, in, is, there, is there benefit to, to Judaism? Yeah, he lists in chapter 9, that big long list that we just read a second ago. But notice the difference between that question, chapter 3 and verse 1. What advantage has the Jew in the benefit of circumcision? Well, he mentions the oracles of God. He mentions you're the ones through whom the Messiah comes. He mentions uh, the priesthood. He mentions the temple services. He mentions the promises. He mentions the patriarchs. He mentions all of that stuff throughout Romans. But then look at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? We might have the advantage of being the Jew, but are the Jews better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And so there is absolute advantage and benefit and blessing associated with Judaism. But that doesn't make you better. And because of sin, that's the great equalizer that removes all possibility of boasting. That's the reason why there's no partiality and there's no distinction. And it's also the reason why God is absolutely still just. Because it was sin that caused those who rejected to, be, uh, to experience his wrath or to be removed from his covenant people. It was our unfaithfulness. And our unfaithfulness to God doesn't make him unfaithful. Our unfaithfulness doesn't make God wrong. That, that's, that's when you get back up to verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? It's like, you can't say, well, but they've been rejected. Well, that's not them being rejected. They, they rejected God. He's still the one who's righteous. Uh, the, someone not doing the word of God doesn't nullify the word of God. It doesn't make the word of God wrong, does it? In fact, we know it doesn't because verse 4 says this. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true and every human man a liar, as it is written. And then notice this quote. This is from Psalm 51 that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So what he's saying is let every person be a liar, every person wrong, every person unfaithful. That would not in any way discredit the faithfulness and the righteousness and the truth of God. He stands supreme above it all no matter what. So that is the major question that Paul is getting at. It's the, it's the righteousness of God. But what's fascinating right here, and this is where I'm going to kind of slow down in this lesson and take a slightly different direction with it, is this quotation from Psalm 51. It says, that you may be justified in your words. So that word justified, that's the word righteous. So God's words are righteous. That, that's our key word. And prevail when you are judged. When people are judging God, he's victorious. And when he speaks, his words are righteous. So that is, I think that's just a component of Romans that's often left out, that God is in some sense on trial, and Paul is, is arguing for the justice and the righteousness of God uh, throughout, throughout this book. But notice right there, the passage that he quotes is saying that God is righteous in his words, and he's victorious when he is judged. Because he's the one who's the ultimate judge of the world. If he wasn't, how could he judge the world? That, that's where Paul goes on to say, um, you know, in, in verse 5 and 6. 
But if our righteousness, or if our, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? It's like he has to be the one who determines this. Uh, and, and so we can't, we can't judge him based on our own sinfulness or our own unrighteousness. But going back to that quote, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a wonderful psalm. Uh, psalm 51 is a psalm of David. And it's one of those psalms that if you actually read the, uh, the heading to it, it's one of the few psalms that gives you a historical circumstance in which the psalm was written. So turn with me quickly to Psalm 51. There's a context to Psalm 51, and it might just be in some ways connected or relevant to the book of Romans. Psalm 51. So uh, do you see where it says verse 1? Look right above that in your Bible, and there's a little note there. Now, sometimes there are notes that are added by your translators that are not part of the ancient manuscripts. They're just kind of helpful notes from your translator. But in the Psalms, there are headings that are actually in our ancient manuscripts. Uh, whether or not they were written by the inspired author or like a, a Jewish editor, it, uh, to me, that's, that's, a, that's an up-in-the-air question. You know, it's a, but it, they are written, there are notes written above the Psalms in our ancient manuscripts that often show us how in the earliest days these psalms were interpreted. And Psalm 51 is a psalm that says, here's what that note says, for the choir director, all right, so that's kind of, some of these notes kind of help you with knowing, uh, uh, you know, who's supposed to be leading them or, or, or you know, if they're going to be, uh, um, um, you know, played in the temple or something, some of the, some of the instruments to use or who's supposed to be leading it. Sometimes you'll see the names of the, uh, like David or, or Asaph or uh, Heman and Jeduthun or the sons of Korah, or like these different people attributed to these psalms. Uh, but it says, this is for the choir director. It's a psalm of David. And then notice the phrase, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 has a context of after David's sin with Bathsheba and Nathan comes and confronts him about it. So what's that story? Uh, in brief, David, king of Israel, doesn't go to war when the other kings are at war. He stays home. He stays at, uh, at his palace. He goes up on the rooftop. And while he's up there, he sees a woman bathing. This woman has a husband. The husband's name is Uriah, and he's out at the wars. David's not. In fact, David, um, as the king, sees her, finds her beautiful, asks about her, and then has his men go and take her and bring her, and he has uh, relations with her. Um, he is the king. He already has multiple wives at this time, but he decides to take someone else's wife uh, as his own. Um, there is a stark contrast between the righteousness of Uriah, who is uh, a Hittite, by the way, and the unrighteousness of the Israelite David. Uh, David takes Uriah's wife. She becomes pregnant. And so he has to try to find some way to, to clear his name, to justify himself. And so he has uh, Uriah come, and he wants Uriah to sleep with his wife on this visit to town uh, before going back out there to battle so that maybe there will be some confusion. And anyway, he'll think that it's his child. Well, Uriah refuses. No. Uriah would go to war 
and David would stay home from war. Uriah wouldn't even sleep with his own wife. David would sleep with another man's wife. You have this, this contrast that's forming about the integrity of these two people. Um, David is the Israelite king who is supposed to lead the people in righteousness closer to God. Uriah is a Hittite who, uh, who is, does not have those expectations. And so uh, it doesn't work. He eventually gets Uriah drunk, and that doesn't work, and so he decides just to have Uriah killed and then to take Bathsheba to be his own wife. So he sends Uriah out into this battle. He sends a letter to Joab to have him uh, tell the armies to back away from him, and Uriah is stranded, and he's killed because of David's greed and selfishness, because of his abuse of power as a king. And David now has in some sense, solved his problem by having Uriah killed, he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. But he's not solved his problem with God. That, uh, that facilitates a visit uh, from uh, someone named Nathan, who is a prophet. And Nathan comes to David and tells him the story. So Psalm 51, the beginning of it says, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Nathan the prophet's there. And Nathan the prophet tells him a story about this really wealthy man who had everything he could ever have. He was a wealthy guy. He had all the flocks and all the herds and all the cattle and all the sheep and the huge house and all that stuff. And there was a poor man who had nothing at all except one little lamb, a little ewe lamb. And uh, that was his only possession. So like all of his affections went to that one thing. And he loved that lamb. He cared for that lamb. He slept in the same house as that lamb. The lamb, and they ate from the same plate. It's like a really close relationship with this lamb. Um, and then a visitor comes to town, and the wealthy man wants to sacrifice for him and, and, and offer him a meal. But he looks at his thousands upon thousands of all the blessings that he has, and he doesn't want to waste a single one of them. And so instead, what he does is he takes the ewe lamb from the poor guy, and he kills it, and he offers it to the stranger instead. And when David hears this story, he is furious. He is judging absolutely harshly the sins of that rich man and how he was unjust, how he was selfish, how he abused his power. Like all of the things that David just did, he's condemning this man for doing. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. And it's at that time that David is struck by the reality of how far he has fallen from what he once was and from who God chose him to be. He has committed adultery. He has lied and deceived a nation. He used his power as king to have a man, a good man killed. He has taken another woman to be his wife. Like he has become the epitome of what an immoral, ungodly, pagan king is. And that's who he's become. And now Nathan has brought it up to him, and Nathan has told him this in this cleverly devised story, this way that brings all of that down upon David. And David immediately admits his sin and is forgiven by God. God's merciful to him, and God forgives him of the sin. And then you have Psalm 51 that is written where it begins. In the context of that sin, David's response saying, Be gracious to me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you may be justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So 
God as the judge, God as the one who pronounces condemnation, is the one who is just and the one who is justified and the one who is blameless. Whereas David, on the other hand, in the complete opposite role, has been unjust and full of blame in what he has done. And he, there's this comparison between the justice of God and the injustice of David as David has been rightly condemned for his sins. But now he's pleading with God for mercy and compassion and forgiveness. That's the passage that Paul quotes right there in chapter 3 of Romans. Now what's truly fascinating about that, I think, um, consider the story that Nathan told David. The story of a man committing this horrible sin. A man who has done something that anyone who looks at it would say, that is egregious and wicked and horrible and selfish, right? And then David looks at that man and says, not only is that horrible, but the man needs to die and restore fourfold what he's taken. David looks at his sin as a sin worthy of death. Think about the logic of the book of Romans in the first three chapters leading up to this quotation. You have Paul, who in chapter 1 enumerates the sins of the Gentiles. And you have all of these horrible things that they've done. All of these things associated with paganism that are wicked and that are immoral. Uh, turn with me uh, back to Romans just really quickly. Romans chapter 1 Notice verse 29. He says, talks about them having this depraved mind and says they're being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who do the same. Notice that idea, this list of sins that makes them worthy of death. David heard the sins of this man that made him worthy of death. And so David is judging against this man. And it's as David is judging against this man that Nathan flips it on him and says, you are the man. You're actually the one who has committed all of these things that you're blaming them for. That is exactly what Paul does in Romans chapter 2 when he immediately flips it on them, and he says in verse 2, sorry, chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, David. It's like, David, and the thing that you're judging him for, you're condemning yourself by the very words that you're saying. When you say he deserves death, what does that mean about you? Who did something even worse than taking a lamb, by the way? You took his wife and you killed him for it. It's like, like you're, a, you can't judge him. You're the one who's guilty of the same things. Look at verse 3, where Paul writes, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things that you, uh, that you yourself do, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Notice how he's saying, listen, you're condemning this one while you're doing the same thing. Oh, man. Again, that, that echoes in my mind that you are the man. It's like, that's who you are. And that's exactly what Paul is doing as he uh, writes the first couple of chapters of Romans. And so Paul, then when he gets to this justification of God, saying that God is the one who actually is just in his condemnation, what passage does he quote? He quotes Psalm 51, which in the heading, which whenever you're reading an Old Testament quotation, and again, I, I, don't, I don't know if, if Paul actually is in, intentionally trying to mirror the Nathan, the prophet's story, uh, when he says, like, worthy of death, or things like, you, oh man, and just the logical flow of it by getting everyone to, to, to agree that this is sinful and then flipping it and saying it's actually your sin. But that is what he's doing. He's, he's, the logic is there. It's the same flow of argumentation in these two stories. And then when he, they come together, when he quotes that verse from Psalm 51 that is about the, uh, the, the Nathan the prophet story, and he uses that to show that in God's condemnation of Jew and Gentile alike, he is the one who's ultimately just, so that he will be justified in his words and prevail when uh, he is judged. To me, those are profound similarities between these stories. But they go on even further as you continue to read, and you realize that David himself makes an appearance in the book of Romans in the very next chapter. So this morning we talked about Abraham and how Abraham is this, this really helpful demonstration, illustration of God's plan having always been to justify based on faith regardless of circumcision, because Abraham was justified by, by his faith before he was circumcised, and he became the father of the Jews uh, after he was circumcised. But, but what you have right there is this example of in one man, him being able to be the father of Gentiles and Jews alike, because he was just before God uncircumcised like Gentiles, and just before God circumcised, and he became the father of the Israelites, but he also became the father of many nations. And that's why Paul can declare him to be the, the father of us all. But then in Romans 4, right in the middle of that discussion about Abraham, he does use David as an example one more time. And this is Romans chapter 4 in verse uh, 6. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So he says David makes the same point too, that God credits righteousness upon a man apart from works of the law. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. So this guy isn't doing the law, his deeds are lawless. Like that's the opposite of law but they're forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Do you have the word account right there in your Bibles or, or something? Okay. Um, the reason that I think this passage is quoted right after, look at verse 3. Abraham believed God, and my Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. But that word credited or accounted to him as righteous is the same word that, that David uses right here. And so these passages are linked by the use of that word. And what you see in that is that there are some people who God credits righteousness to, and he does not credit sin to. It's like even, even people who sin, God gives them righteousness, but he does not give them the sin. 
You think, well, well, what is that based on? Again, that, that's based on Jesus. Uh, Jesus is how that can happen for you. Um, but what, uh, in, in that blessing, verse 9 of chapter 4, he says, is this blessing then on the circumcision or on the uncircumcised also? And his point is, it's for both. It's for both circumcised and so, for Jew and Gentile alike. But what he does in verses 7 and 8 is he quotes from Psalm 32. So go back with me really quickly to Psalm 32. This is another Psalm of David. Part of Paul's uh, argumentation in Romans comes from the life of David itself and the quotations from the Psalms of David where David writes about these sins that he has had and how God has been merciful and graceful and God has forgiven him of these sins even though according to the law he did not deserve it. According to the law David should have been killed for his sins. According to the law, he committed a capital crime when he took another man's wife and when he had Uriah killed. That's, that's death sentence. And yet God forgave him and was merciful based on his grace. And so when you get to like a Psalm 32, I don't think there's any way you can read it without some of those things going on in, in your mind. And uh, verse 1, in fact, Psalm 32 it is often read in connection with the David and Bathsheba sin. But it's the first two verses that Paul quotes when he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away from me as with a fever in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. These are the types of stories that Paul is wanting in the minds of the reader as you make your way through Romans. Again, anytime you're reading the New Testament and it quotes from the Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament and read what's happening there. And a lot of times it will illuminate the story that you're reading in the New Testament. Paul is saying that this blessing of forgiveness that God offers is something that uh, is credited to people even when they don't deserve it. Uh, it's not credited based on law, you know, works of law. As a matter of fact, it's done for lawlessness. That's, that's why forgiveness is given. Uh, and David becomes this principal example, kind of like Abraham. David also becomes this example of someone who, like the Gentiles and like the Jews, has sinned in a grievous and horrible way and yet experienced the very mercy of God. Not because of his obedience to Torah, not because of his works of law. He was disobedient to law, uh, but because of the mercy and the the kindness and the goodness of God. And that is what through Jesus is being made available to Jew and Gentile alike. And so uh, there's a lot more that kind of goes into this, but uh, that was the thought I wanted to, to leave us with tonight as we kind of see how David actually plays a bigger role in the story of Romans than we otherwise might have thought. It's easy as you're reading through just to see a verse pop up and go, okay, then just keep on, on reading. But but Paul actually has a lot of Old Testament backdrop to virtually everything that he's saying, even when he's not directly quoting from the Old Testament, and certainly when he is. But God is merciful and gracious and forgiving. God forgave David, God forgives Jews, he forgives Gentiles, and he can forgive any one of you who's here tonight. And if there's anyone here in need of the forgiveness of God, uh, we pray that you would let that be known. You can have your sins washed away in baptism, or you can uh, confess your sins uh, to a gracious and loving God. And uh, if you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.